0: So hello and welcome to the IMI Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh, and today I'll be talking to Dr. Trish Gorman all about strategy execution. We'll look at uh, some of the reasons strategies fail during implementation, how a leader can communicate the strategy to focus their organization and keep it on the right track. Look at how a CEO can ensure they get accurate up-to-the-minute information to make real-time decisions and how to keep the strategy flexible and agile enough when faced with real world facts. As always, we'll try not to use phrases like it's a balance or it depends on the context and instead to give you some straightforward advice as a leader of people. So hi Trish, welcome to the IMI.
1: Very happy to be here today, Hugh.
0: Great. Um, I was about to read your bio, but we don't hear me all day and it might take up the entire running time. So do you mind filling in the listeners a bit about your background, especially relating to strategy?
1: Certainly. I've spent about a third of my career in academia teaching MBAs and some undergrads and many executives about strategy and strategy execution. Um, About a third of my work has also been in consulting, working with actual companies and trying to help them get results. Um, And the final third, it was in industry. Um, The bulk of that was earlier in my career, but I think that gives me a unique perspective because I've seen how people try to think about and talk about and do strategy execution.
0: So you've seen this sort of full gamut, the full scope. Mm-hmm. So when you look back and you look forward, when it comes to tragedy execution, what do you think keeps CEOs awake at night?
1: Um, I think there's two major things. One is this idea that they might be disrupted at any time and the volatile, ambiguous and complex world we mm. live in. And the idea that their industry might just not follow the same rules tomorrow. And the second thing is, let's assume everything does stay constant. That doesn't mean they get a good night's sleep. Uh, that means they then have the hard job of, of change, which is what um, execution really is and engagement and inspiration and leadership and, and everything else. So it's sort of, if, if it changes, you've got problems. If you've got disruption, you've got problems. And if it's stable, you've got problems. Um, but some, some leaders really rise to that challenge and, and find it enervating and, and exciting.
0: Yeah, and um, when it comes to tragedy mm-hmm. execution, Where do organizations as a whole typically fall down? Like what's what's the really common missteps? Let's start with the obvious.
1: Yeah. Well, the obvious is that they either oversimplify or overcomplicate it. So the oversimplification is saying, you know, let's all cut costs, go. And, you know, assuming it'll roll out because they may have heard some anecdote of, you know, when Gillette tried to reduce overhead costs, it worked like a charm. Mm. But they oversimplify and they don't realize how much work it took and what the key levers were that were utilize to get those results. And the other is overcomplicating it and getting way down into the weeds and making sure that everybody knows every step along the way. That tends to be especially problematic if you do get disrupted because then you've got all these details and you just have to throw them away and, and uh, come up with an adaptive plan.
0: Mm. You read a lot of statistics about how many strategies fail um, in their execution. I'm not going to ask you for a hard number. but it. it in general, how many strategies do fail in execution, and I'm talking about good strategies here, not, not a bad strategy in, at the beginning, but a good strategy that fails in execution. How common is that?
1: I think it's altogether too common. I would say about half that I know of, if you could really say it was a good strategy, still don't actually get all the results that they expect out of it. And again, it depends what you mean by failure. Sometimes it's abject failure that the yeah. whole thing doesn't take off at all. But often it's just that they don't really get all the benefits that they could. They Everybody doesn't doesn't benefit as well as they would have hoped.
0: And um, again, another statistic, I might as well stay there. I, I read that only 8% of leaders excel at both strategic planning and strategy execution. Does that ring true to you?
1: I'd say that is a little bit low from my experience. But then again, I see executives who are doing this every day. So they're probably maybe in, in a little bit more of the... a little bit higher on the accomplishment scale, but strategic planning does take a different set of uh, tools and a different way of thinking than actual execution. And We find people, if they can let go of that planning mentality, Mm -hmm. which has a lot to do with assuming stability and trying to control things and get into more of the implementation mode, um, you can increase the your skill set there very quickly with just a few interventions with just developing a little, little bit different skill set and then shifting your mindset. That's really what's important to get away from that idea that planning is a very different set of skills and can't be done effectively at the same time as execution. We call it strategy in action.
0: Um, let's go into sort of what makes strategies work. It, it, is, it is kind of tried <laughs> to say communication is important. <laughs> But I do want you to explain to me how a leader should communicate a strategy to their organization, both at the outside outset and during the process. Are there any key characteristics that a good strategic message should have?
1: Yeah. I say there's three key things. Uh, and I, first of all, communication is vitally important. And I like to shift from talking about communication to talking about dialogue. When we think communication, no matter how well trained we are, we start to think about sending a message. Mm. And the first thing is it's not just about sending a message it's about dialogue which includes listening interpreting translating making meaning making narrative it's not just making announcements all the time so establishing a culture of dialogue is really important and changing the way conversations are held the second thing is actually um, repeating your messages and even giving people many opportunities to speak with you and to you. So let's say you're listening and you expect someone's going to come right to the point and tell you exactly what's on their mind and where the big obstacles are. Has that ever actually happened in real life? Never. So it's allowing this to be an iterative process and not assuming the first time you have a conversation with someone you've actually gotten to the nub of the issue.
0: Sorry, just to oh. just to narrow down that point of the reiteration mm-hmm. and and the mm-hmm. dialogue. So this isn't the CEO uh, having a regular town hall meeting going up and repeating the strategy. It's mm-hmm. about actually engaging the employees about that strategy.
1: It's yes, and I'd say in both. Because those town hall meetings don't hurt, Mm. but by themselves, they're not sufficient. You can't just get up at the front and and, uh, make pronouncements. Oftentimes, that even increases the cynicism because that's more seen as something you do for the PR and the media and the talking points. But... If you're doing those town hall meetings and what you're saying is resonating because you've also had the one-on-one conversations, you've also had the group meetings, you've also had some other ways of having dialogue, whether that's on a social media platform, uh, uh, you know, some kind of a, a, a chat function inside your company or, or in person over lunches, then it can be really valuable to also have that regular town hall or, or open forum. and. The issue we see is this is costly in terms of time and in terms of resources, and so people are often looking to find a simpler way. And we say that is the work. The dialogue is the work. The work is getting done as you're engaging this way because you're solving problems and you're raising issues and you're reinforcing priorities.
0: Dialogue, to me, um, sort of suggests change because there's two conversations, so it's going to evolve. So. Who is responsible for keeping that uh, central strategic message consistent or should it be kept consistent at all and just sort of monitored and directed?
1: There has to be a, a consistency at a high level and many of the most successful strategies do come down to some very simple rules or simple slogans. Now behind those, there's a lot of complexity and and much more um, informed perspective, but at one level, the senior leaders are responsible for that message and for keeping the organization on message or signaling when adaptation is needed. You can't really move off a position until you know what position you're on. So that is very much a senior leadership responsibility. On the other hand, if it's done well, everyone in the organization in their own domain is a leader. So they have their own, whether you've got a team on the shop floor or you've got a bunch of people in a call center or wherever you are, everyone needs to also be the captain of their smaller team or their different team. So they're also managing the interpretation of that message for their audience.
0: Mm. And how does a leader at the top of the organization, when you talk about that sort of, uh, everyone's a leader. So how can someone at the top of that organization make sure that people on the front line? Are making independent, good decisions based on the strategy, Mm -hmm. while still staying out of their, you know, not looking over their shoulder.
1: Yeah, the key thing there is helping everyone understand what the. uh, I know you promised no buzzwords, really, but (laughs) the model of value creation is so. If if it really comes to that, let's say in an airline. The way, the model of value creation is making sure that when someone enters the airport, the first person they engage with who's a representative of the airline has a good experience. That's a that's a model you can say as opposed to saying it's about whether the plane takes off on time. You know, other people, a different model would be we don't care if we're rude to you as long as the plane takes off on time. It's Reiner. Right, <laughs> there you go. But if everyone in the entire organization understands we're rude but we're on time, that's our model, versus we're really super friendly and then things happen and you might not be on time but boy you love us as an airline. Mm. Whatever your industry is, whatever your business is, whoever your customers are, everyone in your organization needs to be on the same page about that model. So imagine one day you come in and a certain airline is is um, very customer or service oriented, and the next week you fly and they're not, you're seeing inconsistency. In it's got to be an overall model that everyone follows, whether you're in a service industry, manufacturing industry, high tech. Once that model is understood by everybody, then it uh, helps that you don't have to give them specific details, like smile when you see the customer coming. Mm-hmm. You don't have to say that if they've already you know, understood what the overall model of value creation is for their business. And that's where we see the best strategic leaders and the best strategy execution happens because everyone's got the same kind of playbook in their mind. And once that starts to happen, then you don't have to give as much direction.
0: You, you talk about there as sort of the, the decision makers on the front line, the empowering on the front line. How does a leader get the information back accurately from that front line? So the strategy has been put into place. It's working. It's, you know, making contact mm-hmm. with the reality. How do they get that information back up? Mm-hmm. Accurately. Accurately. That's, a,
1: that's a great question, and I really appreciate the question, Hugh, because right now we have so much data that there's a heavy emphasis on getting quantitative data back, and that's very important. But it's also important to get the qualitative feedback and to understand, are your customers satisfied or not? How do you measure up against competitors and against alternatives? And actually, are your employees and your other stakeholders uh, satisfied with the way things are going? So I think that the the idea of having many again it seems like a redundant system it doesn't seem very cost effective, but collecting quantitative and qualitative data, and also looking at kind of some leading indicators and some lagging indicators if I can say mm-hmm. so, I might be able to look in the rearview mirror and understand what happened last month and start to adjust. But there's also some early indicators, and if if we stay with airlines, you know I can look at my future bookings, or I can look at uh, whether my, my most loyal customers are staying loyal and things to that effect. So it's really, it's an art of its own, and it's incredibly important for strategy execution to have those feedback loops. We call them continuous learning loops, because mm. we're not just getting the feedback, we're learning what's working, we're doubling down on what works, and then we're abandoning things that aren't really paying off for us.
0: And again, let's drill down a little bit more into that. How do you ensure that sort of the midline managers don't uh, distort the figures to sort of fit the original plan. <laughs> yeah, there's a great tendency to do that mm-hmm. because it will satisfy people up the higher, higher, higher food chain. Mm-hmm. So are there any sort of practical uh, techniques that leaders can sort of break that taboo of, of real information?
1: I think that comes at two levels. There's, there's the one that is cultural. Um, if you've got a culture that everybody pads their numbers, everybody pads their numbers. And you'd be kind of irrational not mm-hmm. to. But as soon as it's known, then you can also adjust back and adapt for those kinds of uh, biases. So there's there's a cultural piece, and that's long-term change, and that's really trying to dig into how you how you work as an organization. But in the shorter term, you, you switch up what you're measuring. So if, if everyone's padding the numbers for how many sales calls they made, then go look at how much is getting delivered out of the warehouse. Mm. Um, if the deliveries out of the warehouse is where they're being able to fudge the numbers a little bit, go out and look at uh, repeat orders from the customers. So it takes a little bit of almost uh, you know, getting, keeping one step ahead, and then once the organization kind of realizes that you're very serious about mm. this continuous learning and that you take this feedback quite seriously, then you reduce the incentive for people to, to, to say pad their numbers. Then reward people for giving you honest answers, even if they're not what you wanted to hear.
0: That's interesting actually, you sort of incentivize the truth almost. Absolutely. Um, I can imagine there's sort of two types of leaders when it comes to strategy execution. One's that make the plans, hands it down to employees, and then let them get on with it. And then the other one that sort of gets involved in the entire process. Where should a leader fall along this spectrum?
1: It really depends on the kind of plan it is and how stable your environment is. Mm. So if you've got a relatively stable environment and a relatively clear path um, to value where you understand who your customers are and what you're making, then it's much easier to come up with a plan and hand it off. Mm. If you're actually sort of you know building the car while you're driving it and you're in maybe an emerging technology area or a place where you've got some really unusual competition maybe coming in from another industry or geographically, then it's much more important to stay in the moment and stay in the creation and execution becomes much closer together. Now, many more companies are in that latter category Mm. now. So many more companies are saying, "We we can't afford to be complacent and assume we know our customers and assume we know our product is stable. So more people are staying in the execution and not just handing it off to someone else.
0: And in Ireland, we'd have a lot of uh, multinationals where sort of fairly big companies. So should they have a group around them, you know, strategy champions that can look into this area, that area, that area? Or should they actually literally just be meeting everybody that they possibly got? In
1: in larger companies and especially geographically dispersed companies, you definitely do see... The senior leaders, you know, on airplanes and on Skype and Zoom calls, and trying to stay as in touch as they can, but that's never going to be enough. Mm. They really do need to pass on really transparently what is the model we're trying to do, what are the outcomes we're trying to achieve, um, what really matters, and then they can do both. They can, can connect, but in those connections, those dialogues with everyone who's spread out across the world, you know, trying to. I'll create value through the company, they can touch base about the most important things. Um, so you can imagine having very focused touch points, but also having a lot of latitude and being able to let go because once you've once you've got a common model, and especially if it's a model that allows for some for some adaptation. You know, mm-hmm. things get volatile, things get crazy, that you know, oh I'm gonna I'm, here here's a lever I can push. I'm gonna hire more of these types of people or I'm going to uh, stockpile a certain kind of raw materials. If you don't already have that model, then it's very difficult for people to feel comfortable letting go and letting the middle and lower level leaders do their thing.
0: And again, in Ireland, we have a lot of the the, the tech giants have headquarters here. So I would imagine a lot of them have strategies long-term about AI automation, all that sort of thing. How do you create a buy-in for change when it's seen as a threat an existential threat to an employee's
1: future—is
0: mm-hmm. it an impossible question to answer?
1: It's not an impossible question to answer, but it's a difficult question to answer because if it truly is an existential threat, you're you're coming at the problem. If you're doing it well, from both a, a side of compassion and a side of discipline, the discipline for the organization is this is where we need to go. Mm. And you see a lot of companies who get in trouble because they don't change fast enough. They don't disengage from uh, from areas where they're not profitable or where the technology is obsolete So the discipline of knowing when to disengage and when to make the tough decision is vitally important The other side of that polarity is the compassion of saying we care about you as an employee we appreciate that you're devoting your time and talents to our organization and We're not just going to uh, dismiss your concerns your 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 your, uh, you know, maybe career Mm -hmm career-ending uh, decision that we've just made, so whether that's a question of uh, repurposing people, retraining, um, helping to find a, a series of, of career moves that enable people to survive throughout these changes, and the reason I'm very hesitant is that's again, it's expensive, it's difficult. Some firms have done it quite well, and in other areas, people believe the market takes care of that. And Organizations are not necessarily responsible to make sure everyone still has a career when the organization needs to move in a new direction.
0: On the on the flip side of that, what are the best methods for using a new strategy and, it, and its implementation to unlock the value in a team? You know, I'd imagine leaders can find real diamonds in the rough by watching a strategy implementation play out across their organization.
1: Oh yes, and this again is the continuous learning and the feedback. This is why I'd be I'd be almost happy to get. Um, maybe a negative performance review to say, well, this isn't working, and delve into why isn't it working? Mm. Well, sometimes counterintuitively, some of the reasons it's not working is because there's there's another there's a different opportunity. Mm. Um, so it could be that you uh, give people enough latitude and enough uh, room to be creative that they come up with things that the the top leadership could have never thought of. They're closer to the real problems. They're closer to the customer. They're closer to the products. And oftentimes you can really find, as you say, a diamond in the rough. Mm.
0: Uh, We've probably all been in those companies that seem to have a new strategy every day. I'd imagine (laughs) you've you've sort of dealt with a couple of them and everything that is new is given that sort of strategy moniker. How could a a senior leader recognize the symptoms in their organization of uh, their company essentially burning out and that sort of strategic stress and what are those signs that they can see and act upon?
1: Yeah, we used to call it change fatigue, but I really do think it is an issue. You're constantly adapting to the uh, changes around you and it does tend to burn out some people. It does, there is some hope though, because constant change, it can be framed in a different way. I mean, our lives are constant change, you know, we we, um, are very adaptive in terms of the way we work together. It's the difference between framing it as an obstacle. If you come into work expecting it to be exactly like yesterday and it isn't, then that is the beginning of the stress that you refer to. Mm. If you come into work every day expecting it to be different, um, then you can embrace that. And part of it is the dialogue you have around change, around strategy, and part of it is connecting the dots. Sometimes what sounds like different strategies is really different sides of the same strategy. So I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with this old story about these men who were describing an animal. And one, one feels the animal and says, boy, it's like a hard wall. As high up as I reach, I can't reach the top. And another one says, really? Because I feel it like a snake almost. It's, it's thin and, and slender and soft. Another says, Well, I don't think that's it at all. I I I feel that it's just like a little tuft and and they're all talking about an elephant, you know. So and one's touching the ear, one's touching the trunk, one's touching the side. If you actually can describe the elephant to your people in your company and to your stakeholders, instead of having one say, I want to you know, my project feels Mm. like a wall, my project feels like a trunk, my project feels like a tail, it's gonna integrate that and help people to see the bigger picture. So when we talk about the big picture, the ten thousand foot view, we don't mean to trivialize it. We mean to help people step away, see their piece in a much larger puzzle, and that reduces the stress incredibly and helps them see opportunities to work together.
0: I presume that that falls within that spectrum of the simple message versus the overcomplicated. Getting that balance right will help yeah. describe the elephant.
1: Absolutely, and so the people who get too into the details are telling you what the elephant ate for breakfast. And the people who are too simplified say, "Well, oh, it's some kind of an animal in Africa. And you've got to be able to tell them what the elephant looks like in a way that's meaningful to them and also helps them orient where they're standing in, in, the, in, this, in this picture we're drawing.
0: <laughs> um, moving on a little bit. Uh, alignment is a common step for managers and leaders implementing a strategy that is aligning resources of the company through requirements of the strategy, such as hiring new people. Mm-hmm. How often do leaders leave it at that and move on? Um, and what's the danger there?
1: Sometimes, if you clear away obstacles for your people and you give them the resources, you can move on. Because certainly, a lot of senior leaders are really living in the future. Hmm. I mean, all all really effective uh, people who lead strategy execution are time travelers. They're they're in the future, thinking about where they might be. Hmm. Um, they're in the past, learning from what they have done, and they're in the present, making decisions. And that idea that the more you can uh, leave it to others, the more you can kind of move your your vision out, out in front is really vitally important. But if you haven't set the stage and if you haven't done the skill building, if you don't have a playbook that you've shared, if you don't have a model of how you're creating value and you don't have this strategic dialogue, then you'd best not abandon your people because they, don't, they won't be able to maintain momentum.
0: Okay, I think we've uh, covered sort of communication or dialogue. We've, we've covered a bit about execution, the leader's role. And now I now want to talk about the sort of measurement and the ongoing um, process uh, that a leader should be able to, to see their, their strategy execution, the eagle eye view. So first of all, what's the value of measurement when it comes to execution? Do you see it often? Is, is it something that you can realistically do for these overarching strategies? What are the metrics that should, people should be using?
1: A lot of good questions packed in there, Hugh. Um, I'll start with one that I think people, um, an easy win, Mm. is to do small experiments and get feedback from those. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times measurement is, you know, let's look at our stock price for the first half of next year. By that time, a lot of ships have sailed. So it's smaller experiments about can you do something with a certain subset of customers or can you try out a, a joint venture with one uh, supplier and and give it a try and get immediate rapid feedback, and taking a chapter from the from what Silicon Valley has taught us about um, uh, failing fast and failing cheap, mm. we don't always want to fail, but it's okay if you fail because it's learning. And those metrics of did they buy? What was their willingness to pay? Did the uh, new technology work? You know, uh, is our new product favorable compared to our arch rival in in, in our industry? Um, were we able to hire the people we wanted to hire? Um, are our investors happy? These kinds of things are running experiments and, and getting rapid feedback as opposed to waiting until you've got quarterly results or you've got you know, monthly sales reports.
0: I'm always fascinated by ego and leaders. <laughs> so I'm wondering is there any way that you can put the metrics in the beginning that halfway through a strategy when you can see it's, it's, it's not succeeding? that you're able to take away ego out of the decision?
1: Great question. If we find that there's a lot of positives to having people personally invested in the strategy and personally identifying with it, that passion that comes with it, the caring, the the real investment really matters. But on the other side of that, that makes it harder to extricate yourself mm. if your baby, your strategy then isn't isn't working out. So this is again where you want to find a way to invest in the intention of the strategy without the actual pathway. So if, if you and I were going to say we're going to um, travel to uh, some destination, I don't know where you want to go, Hugh, but let's just say, let's we're, say Aruba. we'll go to Aruba. Um, if we keep in mind we're trying to get to Aruba. But I've got some, you know, I want to go on a certain airline or on a certain day or in a certain way. And we have to make a change to that. We keep in mind the overall objective. Hmm. Then I don't feel personally that I have my egos in the way of me saying, oh, let's do it your way, you instead of my way. Because we have that shared vision of where we want to get to. I think oftentimes with execution, we very quickly get to the how-to, and we sometimes forget why and where we're really trying to get to. And maybe it isn't even Aruba, but we want to go to some sunny, happy place, and then we could even change our destination without feeling like we failed or without Mm. having, you know, getting in the way in terms of ego. Because if you can, again, a lot of it is narrative and making meaning. If your employees see a switch from a joint venture in Scandinavia to a joint venture in Morocco as a failure, mm. then you might have a lot more problems than if they can see that both of those joint ventures are reaching an overarching goal of providing you with new technologies you need to reach new markets. Then it doesn't seem like a failure at all. It seems like, you know, just another step in your progress towards success.
0: Penultimate question. question. Um, what is the mantra that uh, leaders should keep in mind? You know, that's sort of the last five minutes of the day What's that sentence they should say to, to remind themselves to do something tomorrow?
1: I think there's there's two things that come to mind when you when you put it that way. Is what leaders have to say to themselves. One is on the positive side, and one's on the negative side. Mm-hmm. I'd say on the positive side, you want to be thinking, how can I keep up my pace and my fitness? And by pace, I think that's very clear. You know, we're moving towards a goal, we're achieving our milestones, and fitness is a little bit less clear, perhaps, but it's. How do I keep people from burnout, as we've talked about, in stress? How do we um, keep the dialogue positive? So, On the plus side, it's sort of what, what things can I be doing today and tomorrow that help our pace uh, to continue, gain momentum, and keep us um, at a high level of fitness as an organization and a team. On the negative side, I think it actually does help to say, what's the one thing that could derail us? Or what's the, what's the obstacle I need to clear out of the way so my best people can do their best mm. work? Um, so oftentimes, you know, it doesn't sound like uh, a lot of people in strategy actually, quote unquote, do any work. <laughs> but they certainly inspire and empower others to do work and clear obstacles so others can, can make the contributions that they need to. And so I think it helps to, to very frequently calibrate. What, um, what you can be doing to avoid problems and to increase benefits.
0: Super. And final question, you are in Ireland for a reason. Can you give us a quick tease on what you're working with with the IMI?
1: Yes, I'm actually very fortunate to be working with the IMI on a new program in leading strategy execution that's targeting, targeting future fit leaders and people who want to be uh, able to take their companies into new areas, build new value, and kind of revise and upgrade their playbook to be able to be successful.
0: Super, I'm looking forward to seeing the the, the brochure and everything else. Trish, thanks so much for your time today. Um, Best of luck with everything.
1: Thank you very much, pleasure to be here. Thanks.